Tonight's episode of Legacy Battle is brought to you by Atlas Benefits. Atlas Benefits has solutions for your insurance needs. Atlas Benefits can help you obtain Medicare, health, or life insurance, and employee benefits. You can find them on the web at www.atlasbenefits.com. Or you can contact Rob Ducey or Roy Smith at 727-600-2892 and mention Legacy Battle Podcast. Atlas Benefits has all the solutions for your insurance needs. Enjoy the show. Is Legacy, Legacy Battle coming at you on YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Facebook, and Google Podcasts. You can sponsor this show. Contact us in the comments section. I'm Michael Adams, creator of Legacy Battle. Here with me tonight from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian King, Penn State Collegiate All-Star, Kevin Adams, Ball State athlete, Paul Havocott. And we're joined by a former NHL veteran defenseman. He put up a very impressive 226 penalty minutes in the 88-89 season. With the Jets, he played on the very first Tampa Bay Lightning team. I know we got a lot of Tampa fans here, so we'll get a question during the Q and A about that a little bit later. And of course, he's a two-time Stanley Cup winner with the Pittsburgh Penguins. This is a man who also tried to body slam WWE <laughs> World Champion 568-pounder Yokozuna, Peter Tagliani. Peter, thank you for joining us tonight. And my, my pleasure. And, you know, unfortunately, my career comes down to I was a guy who tried to slam a big fat guy. <laughs> that was, that's basically what my career comes down to. Well, hey, you always went with the heavyweights, too, there in the NHL. So they picked a good guy to represent in that party. Well, slam I, I, always, I always figured it was better for me to get punched in the face than Mario Lemieux get punched in the face, you know. There you go. Well, tonight we're going to be debating the top five NHL defensemen from the 1980s on. Because uh, that takes out a couple of really good players, Bobby Orr, Larry Robinson, a few others. So it's from the 80s on. So we're going to start tonight with Ray Bork. <clears throat> Ray Bork, uh, eighth overall pick in the 79 draft by the Bruins. Five-time Norris Trophy winner. He also finished second in the voting six other times for the Norris Trophy. Um, and as the NHL's all-time point leader among defensemen, you know, Bork was named an all-star in 19 consecutive seasons. Uh, and he won the shooting accuracy competition uh, eight times, which usually forwards are the ones with the accuracy because they got sniped the corners and whatnot. But uh, Bork, a defenseman, won that eight times after 21 seasons with the Bruins. Uh, and there, he was their longest-serving captain. Uh, Bork, you know, got traded to the Avalanche. Uh, he played one and a half seasons there. Um, and this was at the end of his career, and he became actually a dominant defenseman for um, the Avalanche and led them in scoring for defensemen, and he won a Stanley Cup, um, and that was his only Stanley Cup. Uh, I just remember when uh, they ended up winning it, and he got the to hold the cup up and hoist it. That was a good moment. Um, you know, he currently holds the record for the most career goals, assists, points by a defenseman. Uh, twice he finished second in the voting for the Hart Memorial Trophy, which is rare for defensemen. 
Um, in 2017, he was named uh, one of the 100 greatest NHL players of all time. Both the Bruins and the Avalanche have retired his number. He's one of only 10 uh, players to have their jersey retired by, by uh, more than one team. Um, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2004. That was his first eligibility season for the Hall of Fame. Um, defensive rankings, fourth in games played. He played six, over 1,600 games. Uh, first in, in all these categories, goals 410, assists 1169, points 1579, power play goals 173, tied for third in shorthanded goals at 16. First, the game-winning goals for defensemen at 60. Um, and he was third in plus minus. He was a plus 527 to end his career. Uh, he also won the Calder Memorial Trophy, King Clancy, Lester Patrick, All-Star MVP. Uh, three years before he ended his career, he was ranked 14th on Hockey News' list of 100 greatest players of all time. And then he won the Stanley Cup three years later, um, as I said earlier, and was one of the best defensemen for the Avs. Arguably, he's, he leads all, most categories for defensemen. He's definitely got to be in the top five tonight. One of the few men to go four for four on the shooting accuracy at the All-Star game as well. The guy could hit wherever he wanted to. Peter, I mean, is Bork going to have more cups if he doesn't run into guys named Gretzky and Mario for several years in the playoffs? And, and is he is he maybe number one on this list? We don't rank the top five, but is he maybe number one? Uh, I, I, out of the guys that, you, that, that we're going to talk about tonight, uh, he's probably the, the number one guy that we're going to talk about tonight. But let me, I, I know you don't want to talk about – but re remember, as we talk about defensemen, I, I have to – I know you don't want to – Bob, you are. So Bob, you are set, to, set the standard of what a defenseman is in today's game. He was way above the 50s and the 60s, and he revolutionized the game. With that being said, now everybody that came along either tried to emulate what he did or they were – prototypical defenseman who stayed at home. And uh, so when Ray Bork came into the league, I, I think it was, what, 70, I mean, you know, what, 78, 79? 79, yeah. Yeah, right around there. Um, and remember, he was only, I, I, I think when he turned pro, I think he was only like 185 pounds. You know, he wasn't that big of a guy. And he, as you get older, obviously, you put your, your, your more weight on. Uh, but he became a real dominant player probably in about his third year when he put on some more weight and he wasn't getting bounced around the ice. And uh, so I grew up in the Boston area. So I grew up with the, you know, the Bobby Orr's of the world. And then when Ray Bork came, I was in, I was in, uh, in, in high school at the time. Um, and when he showed up, it was like, all right, well, we lost, we lost Orr in the late seventies. He needed somebody to, to kind of pick up the slack. And he did that. And, and he was, he was really dominant. And, and I will tell you that um, we, we, People ask me all the time about him, and I say, well, he was so dumb. You never saw him get beat one-on-one, -on -one, but he got beat once one-on-one, -on -one. and it, 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 we were all in just awe that, that somebody was able to do it, and it was Mario Lemieux beat him. And other than that, you never saw him get beat one-on-one, -on -one, ever. Definitely one of the greatest of all time, and for all our viewers out there watching, we did auction off at our live charity show a Raymond Bork rookie card in the raffle. So keep that in mind when the next charity show rolls around. We, we got great raffle prizes. But, Brian, I'm, I'm going to come to you here on Bork. When we had uh, Andre Wall on, former teammate of his, he said he was one of the classiest guys that, you know, ever played. Darren Poopa had good things to say about him, too. Him taking off when, when they were retiring the number seven for the Boston Bruins, he took off his number seven jersey, underneath had the 77 on. Is that just one of the classiest moves in sports history? 
Yeah. Oh, 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 sorry. I thought you asked me the question. Bye, bye. Good. That's <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, that, that that really was. That was that was one of those moments. And then, I like I mentioned in a, uh, an earlier show that the signature moment when when he took the cup for the first time, and and when you know, it's, and Sackick had the the class, and you know, allowing allowing Bork to be the first one there from the abs to hold you know to hold the cup after they won. That was a, that's something you know, an image that'll just never come out of my mind. It was just a, such a great moment. Absolutely. All right, let's move from 77 to another 77, the doctor, Paul Coffey. Hey, real quick about the Ray Bork thing. Oh, uh, yeah, go ahead. So, so, so Phil, I was talking to Phil Esposito, and we talked about that one day, and he had no idea that was going to happen. That was, that, was, that was all Ray Bork did it spontaneously, and Phil had no idea that went on. That is so, some inside information. I like yeah, that. Pretty man. classy. <laughs> Paul, go ahead. Okay, Paul Coffey, one of my childhood favorites, not just because my name is Paul, but uh, Paul's born 6161 out of Weston, Ontario. He is, like Ray Bork, a 2004 Hall of Fame inductee. Paul's a four-time Stanley Cup champion, three with Edmonton, and then the best one, of course, was with Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah, he plays like his GPS is badly broken and in need of an update, but Paul Coffey is speedy. He ranks all-time uh, second place among NHL defensemen in goals, assists, and points behind only, ironically, Ray Bork. He was known for being extremely aggressive on the offensive side, and that's probably what Peter was referring to earlier. He seemed like almost he preferred at times to play offense and might not have been where he was supposed to be, but he holds or shares 33 NHL records in a regular season in playoffs, and some of the awards and accolades are he's a three-time Norris Trophy winner, for the best defenseman, voted eight times to the All-Star game for his first team and for his second team. He holds the record for the most goals by defenseman at 48, kind of like going back to that offensive thing I said. In one season, during the 85-86 season, only defensive men have scored 40 goals multiple times, doing it in the 83-84 uh, season. And only, one of only two defensemen to score 100 points in a season more than one time, completing this five times. Uh, Bobby Orr did it six. In uh, 2017, he was named one of the top 100 best hockey players of all time. And I think, interestingly enough, he ends up playing in his career with both Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux. And that's Paul Coffey. He does have Bork beat on the points per game. So that that's a stat for him there. So, Peter, you've, you were his line mate. You've also gone round around with him, and he might have had the most blessed career as far as teammates going. As Paul said, he went from Gretzky to Lemieux, back to Gretzky, to, to Iserman, so on and so on, Lindros after that. So tell us about Paul Coffey. So when I got, uh, I got traded to Pittsburgh in December of 1990, and Bob Johnson was the coach of the team. So but anyway, when I was in Winnipeg, I played against Kopp when he was at the Oilers. So I got to play against him as well. So he, I, I obviously knew what he could do. And, and, and I actually kind of knew all of where he – he was never where he was supposed to be when you thought you were playing defense against him. So playing with him, you were like really stymied. He didn't really know what he was going to do. But So I got traded, and um, Larry Murphy and I both get traded to Pittsburgh. And uh, uh, they get us – we get traded – we, they call us at noon and tell us we have a three o'clock flight. We have to get to Pittsburgh and play that night. So we get to the rink about five thirty, six o'clock, and Bob Johnson pulls me in his office and says, hey, can you play the right side with Paul Coffey? And I said, yeah. 
because I played the right side with the Randy Carlisle when I was in the uh, Pittsburgh and uh, Winnipeg. And so he said, yeah. So I, we go up and I, I've met Kopp a couple of times before, nothing major. And he said, uh, okay, uh, just so you know, um, uh, I'm, I'll, I'll be around. That's all he said. I'll be around. I was like, oh, great. So anyway, so we get on the ice a few times, and I think he's going to be in, in front of the net or, or I'm in the corner fighting with some, pushing and shoving with somebody, and I figured he's in front of the net, and I look behind me, and he's like two feet behind me. I'm like, holy shit. I got to go. I, I, I gotta be careful going away from where I'm supposed to be just because I don't know what he's going to be. Uh, but you know what? So Paul Coffey is uh, is what the, you know, like the, the football player, the, the hybrid. He was he became the hybrid defenseman. Um, um, he, he he was actually a, re- a pretty good defenseman, but he really didn't you know care about defense. And, and I, one of his greatest lines to me was, uh, um, "There's no money in defense." That's a, his quote to me. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh Christ!" Because many times we'd be up like five one or something. He goes, "Oh Pete, come on up the ice. We'll get your goal, and you know we'll get your goal." And I say, "Good, I'm good. I, I get I get paid on a plus minus, so I'll, I'll stay back." And I actually went that one year. I was I think I was plus 16 or 17 I think he was like like he was like minus five a year so and that's that's my defense partner so but he was that hybrid guy he was the first guy that became the all all around hybrid um and 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 I think I don't think people give him enough credit he was probably one of the better passers in, in the National Hockey League um and before you know before the new rules and everything they uh they took out the red line now but those long stretch passes that he had to get to Mario or Wayne, but before he got to the red line, um, uh, it, it was incredible. He was able to put it on their stick. And those guys had hand-eye coordination that pick up pucks wherever they were, off the ice, on the ice, you know, 100 miles an hour or 60 miles an hour. They were able to just pick it right off and the way you go. But um, but then he beat everybody down the ice. And I give him a lot of credit because a lot of times, you know, we lose the puck in the offensive zone and, uh, they're coming back at a three-on-one, and before you know it, he's back, and it's a three-on-two. So that, so the skating part, uh, he made up for it in, in, in all kinds of ways. And I, and I'll tell you, he is probably one of the nicest guys I've ever played with in, in the game. I mean, not standoffish. Uh, he'd give you the shirt off his back, um, and, and I, th- I think that's a credit to. Um, and I, it was probably because of the guys he played with. He, he couldn't he couldn't be bigger than the Wayne Gretzky's of the world or the Mario Lemieux's of the world. And uh, I think he, he he knew where his role was, and his role was just to be a guy who's going to um, get offense and, and and get as many points as very many buddies they can. So we're going to go from maybe the greatest offensive defenseman to by far the best defensive defenseman on our list, but also in my opinion, maybe one of the best defensive defensemen of all time. So that's Rod Langway. Might not have expected him to see us see him on our list tonight, you know, but he he did make it, uh, just barely beating out Brian Leach and Dennis Potvin. But let's talk about Rod here. So drafted in 1977, twice he was drafted twice. Mm-hmm. Went 36th overall to the Canadians and sixth overall to the Birmingham Bulls of the the, the World Hockey Association, which of course is no longer around, but uh, there were a lot of teams in that at one point, even the Oilers. He's nicknamed the Secretary of Defense, and that is for good reason, because his highest point total in a season is only 45 points. So it wasn't exactly a big score. But if you needed your goals against average to be down low, this was the guy you wanted on the ice. So he spent four seasons with Montreal, and then he gets traded to the Capitals. And the Capitals, in eight years of existence at that point, had never made the playoffs. From the point when they got Rob Langway, 
they made the playoffs all 11 years that he was there with them. So that's that's a pretty impressive stat. They they credit him with actually saving the Washington Capitals because they they were almost to the point that they might have gone under. So him coming in made it made a a huge difference for that city and for that team. Um, he's a Stanley Cup winner. He does have a Stanley Cup with Montreal. Two Norris trophies. So he was the best defenseman in the league for at least two years. He's a six-time All-Star, first, first-team NHL All-Star, two-time second-team NHL All-Star. And uh, he played for the United States in, in 84, and he made the first team for Canada Cup team All-Stars. So that's very impressive. You know, the United States was not very good at hockey back then. Um, so the fact that he made an all-pro team in, in the Canada Cup, that's very impressive. Um, but yeah, so as I said, you know, he's credited with saving that franchise and he's the first U.S. born dominant defenseman, in, in my opinion. He, he dominated defensively and he was runner up to Wayne Gretzky in 1984 for, um, for the Hart Trophy. That's impressive to have a defensive defenseman be second in, in that category. And also, you know, just a little side note, he was one of the final three men to not wear a helmet. You know, that might not be the smartest thing in the world. But, uh, you know, despite that the rules already was you had to wear a helmet, he took advantage of that grandfather clause, uh, him and LaFleur and uh, Craig McTavish. So they didn't wear helmets. Randy, wear Randy, Randy, Car- Randy Carlisle was another one. Ron Duguay was another one. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there, yeah, there was, it was crazy. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. So, yeah. So tell us about Ron. And do you ever see another defensive defenseman winning a Norris Trophy? Because it seems like it's obsolete for them nowadays. No, the, the game has totally changed from when he started. So so he's from Massachusetts as well. So he was one of those Massachusetts guys that we all knew about, you know, growing up. Um, obviously, he was uh, he went to UNH, and I think he was uh, – like like seven like in 77 76 77 77 78 season so I was like a sophomore in high school at the time but you always heard about him and Jack like Jack O'Callaghan was another guy that was uh, at Boston University so th- those are the guys that the defense those are the ones you heard about all the time because they were the uh, those are the standards that you used and and as you were growing up um, and, and Rod was he's you know he was a big 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 man and and, and he was able to um, he wasn't the fastest skater, but he was able to go from point A to point B very quickly. And, and you know, in those like from the front of the net to the corner and get where he needed to get to. But you, you're not going to see another big, huge defenseman like that who can dominate a game. And, um, um, and, and you know, and he and he the funny part is guys like that who played physical. He never fought. I don't think I don't think I've ever seen him get into a fight. I don't I don't think if you look at his records, he probably maybe had a handful of fights his whole career. And, and that's that's amazing because he was a really physical guy. And, you know, when he and I think he really flourished when he left Montreal because you know the English speaking people, English speaking guys in Montreal don't get the recognition they deserve uh, because of the the language barrier. And when he went to Washington, uh, you know, he just flourished and 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 they. They basically built a team around him, and they had all big, huge defensemen. They, you know, the, we're going to talk about another guy, David Darren, uh, uh, Kevin Hatch, who was there with him, and you know, and Scott Stevens, who we're going to talk about a little bit here. Um, they were just big, huge guys, and they played physical. And um, and I, you know, and I think I don't think you could do that nowadays because, um, like I mentioned with the ball coffee thing, you know, you know, 
unless you're in the playoffs, defense makes no money for the team. You know, fans want to go to a game and see five, six, seven goals. They don't want to see one nothing games or you know zero zero games and go into a shootout. They want to they want to see goals and um, and, and I think Rod was the prototypical guy that everybody wanted to have, but you couldn't get any. He was like the only one. And uh, Al Iafredi there for a while, too. That's, I forgot about Big Al, yeah. Another, another big boy. <laughs> I forgot about him. All right, let's move on to the hardest shooter we got tonight, Al McGinnis. All right, Al McGinnis. Uh, he played for the Flames and for the Blues. Uh, you can't mention McGinnis without talking about his slap shot. I mean, it was absolutely legendary. Uh, he once shattered the glass behind the goal uh, above the boards with one of his shots. Uh, he once split Mike Luit's, um goalie mask with one of those blistering blasts. Uh, just last year in the NHL skills competition, um, he cracked 100 miles an hour with a slap shot. And then that's at age 58. So this guy, amazing slap shot. I mean, goalies, they, they lost sleep thinking about this guy and what he was going to do. Um, and armed with that, with that wicked slap shot, he scored 166 power play goals and 340 total goals during his career. Now, 88-89 was a really special year for McGinnis. Uh, he scored seven goals and had uh, had more assists, 24, and more points, 31, than anyone else did in the playoffs that year. He also had four game-winning goals in the playoffs, and he had two assists in the Flames series, uh, deciding game six win over the Habs, uh, able to get the Flames their first Stanley Cup. Um McGinnis, you know, he could bring more to the table than just scoring, though. I mean, and, you know, he was a leader, and he wasn't afraid to mix up on the boards a little bit, too. Uh, one of the greatest uh, defensemen this game's really ever seen. Got his cup with the Flames, so good for him. I know they were really trying really hard in St. Louis when he was up there. He even had Chris Pronger with him for a while. didn't work out. But, uh, Peter, I mean, a, a question that's kind of McGinnis-related is, how do you get down and block a shot knowing it's coming in that fast as a, uh, a forward uh, playing a PK or as a defenseman? And uh, what, what do you think of McGinnis's overall game? We know he can shoot it. So I, I had to play against him eight times a year when I was in Winnipeg. So I got to, I got to see that puck come whizzing by my head many, many times. And remember, they, he was doing this with wooden sticks too. It wasn't just graphite stuff, and you know, imagine if he had those those sticks his whole time, and uh, you'd add another fifteen miles an hour to his shot. Um, I, I don't think, and I say this all the time: the guys who played, other than you know the Gretzky and the Messiers in the world in Edmonton, the guys who played in Winnipeg and Calgary, and a few guys that you know that played in Vancouver, never got the notoriety they deserved because of. They played in those markets. They didn't get that big media coverage, and and in Canada, you may, maybe did. Uh, but Al McGinnis was probably one of the most steady defensemen that you that you ever saw. He was another guy you never saw him get beat. Uh, he was always in, the, and he played. Geez, I, I bet you, I bet you he was on the ice 35, 40 minutes a game. He killed penalties. He played in the power play. Played his regular shift, um, and, and and that shot. I mean, there, there was when we had to be when we were playing against them. Uh, you know, you come in and, and be, you know, dumping it in and whatever it is, he fired around the boards. And, and he had this little movie head that as he was coming down to shoot around the boards, he just twisted his body a little bit. And goalies tried to cheat to get out behind the net to stop the puck. And he would just like in that real quick and he just flicked his wrist the other way. And he probably scored maybe seven or eight goals that he was 
going to drive it around the boards and goalies cheated and he caught him on it. And, uh, uh, but you really had to watch where you were and, 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 and not turn your back to him in, in your own defensive zone because he let it go and you didn't see it coming. It was going to hit the back of your the back of your back of your back of your legs. You had no padding at all, and you're you're pretty much dead meat. But yeah, he was a really good defenseman, and he was tough too. He he, he didn't take crap from anybody, and I don't think he, he fought. I don't think he I don't think he ever fought. But he was he wouldn't be afraid to jump into a pile if he had to. But he was a really really solid defenseman. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg area up there, because I always I was actually thinking about asking you if you felt like he kind of like flies under the radar. I mean, true hockey fans know how good he was, but yeah, the other normal casual fan probably doesn't think of Al McGinnis when they're thinking defenseman. You know? No, they, and, and I'll tell you, there's uh, uh, there was guys that, and just I'm just throwing. I'm not talking about defenseman, but just an example of in Winnipeg when I played like, the, the Dale Harachuk's of the world and Thomas Steens of the world, and um, those guys were unbelievable. They they're known in the hockey circles, but. Uh, you know, people in the States have no idea how good those guys were. And Al McGinnis, you know, until he got to St. Louis. And then in St. Louis, you don't have that big media market. And, you know, you weren't in the New York area. You know, you didn't get that, that publicity stuff. But he was I mean, well-known in the hockey circles. But, yeah, it's just never got the, the – the, the, there's a lot of guys that never got the uh, the, the honor of, uh, of of getting their name in lights, and, uh, so to speak. And uh, and, and I, I tell you, he was probably – I'd, I'd have to put him in the, maybe in the top – 15 defensemen ever to play the game. Awesome. All right, let's move on to Kevin always picks the easy guys here. <laughs> Ray Burke and Nick Lindstrom. Wow. <laughs> Low hanging fruit, Kevin. Whatever. I didn't even pick first. Anyways, Lindstrom, 53rd pick overall by the Wings in 89. He played his whole career with the Wings, all 20 seasons. Uh, he was given the C uh, his final six years uh, with Detroit there. Um, arguably one of the best defensemen in the history of the NHL. He's won four Stanley Cups with Detroit, seven Norris trophies. He's never finished lower than sixth in the voting for the Norris Trophy. He's won one Conn Smythe for playoff MVP. He was a 12-time All-Star. Uh, the Wings made the playoffs all 20 seasons. You talked about your guy, Mike, all 11 seasons. 20 seasons in a row, the Wings made the playoffs. With no Lynch salary Trump. cap. Whatever. Yeah. This, that's the longest streak in the NHL for a player to not miss the playoffs. He's the first European captain to win a Stanley Cup um, and to win a Conn Smythe Trophy. He's the all-time leader in games by a European player with a single team. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2015. 2017, he was named uh, one of the 100 greatest players in the history of the NHL. Uh, he won a gold medal in 2006 at the Winter Olympics. He's also won a gold, silver, and bronze at the World Championships. Um, he had great durability, longevity. Um, he finished his career second most playoff games uh, played in NHL history uh, at 263, only three games behind the leader, which was one of his teammates at one point, Chris Chelios, um, who had 266. He was consistently among the top players in ice time per game. Uh, when he hit his 1,000th game, he had only missed a total of 17 games in 12 and a half seasons. So to go along with that longevity, he played almost every single game for 12 and a half seasons. Um, Eiserman described him as one of the all-time best defensemen to ever play. Paul Coffey said he was an incredible player. Chelio said, there's been guys who are great players, but no one's better than Nick. Some as good, yes, but this is as big as it gets. He's one of the best athletes ever. And if you're going to talk about somebody who's perfect, 
while Nick is pretty darn close to being perfect. He finished his NHL career with 264 goals, 878 assists, over 1,100 points during the regular season. Playoffs, he had another 54 goals, 129 assists for 183 points. He's a triple gold club winner. So that's winning the Stanley Cup, an Olympic gold medal, and a gold medal at World Championships. Detroit retired his number. He holds the record for the oldest player to score a hat trick and for the oldest player to record their first hat trick. He's 40 years old when he put in his first hat trick, um, showing that he can still play at that age. Uh, he was a dominant defenseman, which shut down the opposing uh, offense better than anybody in the game. Uh, he deserves to be in this top five. I'll tell you one time where he wasn't perfect. Game seven, two seconds left. Flurry robs him. Pens win the cup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Oh, my God, yeah, that's uh... – yeah, I, you know it's funny. You, so when he came, when he when he first started, it was right around the the, the time when uh, hockey players started taking uh, a twelve year twelve month a year approach to fitness, and the the Europeans were always like that. Though they were always they they, they they was kind of matriculating into the NHL. And so when he showed up, he was one of those guys that was always working out, always doing something, always staying in shape. And the durability part of it is, we mentioned, uh, is a key factor in it. Um, he played a lot of minutes. He wasn't real physical, but he played a lot of minutes, and he was he got in people's way. Um, and I, I think that that type of player, you've watched the, watched the game now, every one of those players who are uh, in that fashion, they're not as good as he was, but they're all in that uh, – you know, maybe like the, like the six foot, you know, 100, 195 pound guy that, that is just no body fat, no nothing. And, uh, and, and they can skate like the wind. And I think that's where his durability was, where he, he was able to get in and out of traffic, in and out of trouble when he needed to. And, um, you know, imagine, imagine what Detroit was like before he got there. I, what they, I don't think they made the playoffs for like 10 years in a row or something right before he got there, you know, and then Steve Eisman was, they were just languishing by, you know, they, they had some good teams, but that, that old Norris division just beat the crap out of each other. And, uh, you know, and then I started putting the pieces together and it, it just like the Rod, Rod Langway, uh, uh, you know, they, they found a guy that they can build around and, and they started putting the pieces around him and bringing some guys in and, and you know, and it snowballs and it, 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 it it's hockey's not rocket science, but sometimes you have to have that science, uh, of picking the right guy to, to lead you, and, and he was that guy. And Lindstrom was our only overseas player tonight, so kudos to that. Mm -hmm. So from durability to longevity, let's move to Chris Chelios. Yeah, he played quite a bit. Chris Chelios, known probably most for his time in Chicago. He was actually born in Chicago. He was drafted by the Montreal Canadiens 40th overall in 1981. He played uh, 26 seasons for four different teams, although the last one was uh, like a year with Atlanta, with the Thrashers. We played for Montreal, Chicago, and Detroit. Um, great career. I don't think he was a compiler. I think he performed every year. He finished his career with 185 goals, 763 assists. He had a plus-minus of 351 in 1,651 games. He's a three-time Norris Trophy winner. He won three Stanley Cups, one with Montreal and two with uh, Chicago. He was inducted to the Hall of Fame in 2013. Some notables about Chris Chelios. He currently holds the record for the most uh, games played in the NHL by a defenseman. He's seventh, uh, it's, it's, uh, seventh, he's seventh overall with 1,651 games played. 
He holds the record for the most career playoffs games played at 266, tied with Gordie Howe for the most uh, NHL seasons played with 26. It's also like my other guy named 100 uh, top 100 players in 2017 on the NHL to commemorate their 100th season. I mentioned the year with Atlanta, and I guess the most memorable part about that time in his career is when he was called up from uh, the Chicago Wolves, the AHL team, to play uh, for the Thrashers during the 2009 and 10 NHL season. Chris was the oldest active player in the NHL and the second oldest of all time. He played the most games of any active player in the NHL, was the last player from the 1981 NHL entry draft, still active, or any draft from 1986 and earlier, and had the most career penalty minutes of any active player. Chris was about 48 when he retired, but the oldest player in NHL history is still Gordie Howe, who played final NHL season uh, or game. He's 52 years old when he finished. Uh, Chris had a great international presence, too. 1980-82 uh, World Junior Ice Hockey Championship, 1984 Olympics, 1984 Canada Cup, 87 and 91 Canada Cup as well. 1996 World Cup of Hockey, uh, 1998 Winter Olympics, 2002 Winter Olympics, captain of both. 2004 World Cup of Hockey was a captain of that as well. And in 2006 Winter Olympics, he finished still as a captain. Chris, it's hard to believe he was playing 11 years ago still, but that's Chris Chelios. I think he's definitely a top five player based on his longevity. One one correction on what you were saying there. He didn't get any cuffs with Chicago. They were with Detroit later on. Oh, I'm sorry, Detroit. Yeah, Detroit. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, Peter, you guys stopped him from getting a cup in Chicago in, in 92. Quite a few tangles with him in that series. Uh, was there something you guys were doing to get him off his game? Because he, he didn't look like himself. Well, you know, it's – if you if you saw the well you the, the ninety one team our, our ninety one team if you looked at the firepower we had you know obviously had Lebeau, then you had an eighteen year old kid named Yarmer Yager then, then you had Ron Francis you had Brian Trache Joey Mullen Yuri Herdina uh, we had so many guys that were so offensive minded that any guy that the Chicago wanted to um, isolate on um, that's fine so they they put Chelly out there against Mario well. And then Yager's going to destroy him. You know, if they try to put him on Yager, Mario's going to destroy him. And then you had all these other guys they could do. So we had them on their heels. Their offensive guys um, weren't able to do what they were, they were supposed to do. And our focus was um, we can't get into those the pushing and shoving and, 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 and the, all those whistles and things like that. That, that would, take, would take us out of our game. And um, as long as we, we dictated and, and we had good goaltending, then, then we weren't worried about it. But Chris Chelios – when we talked about Nick Lidstrom and that total fitness package. So I'd say maybe when, uh, oh, I'm going to say Chelly was, oh, maybe 10, 10 years before he, he had finished playing, he took fitness total, totally serious. And uh, he, worked, he, was, he started working out 12 months out of the year. And if you saw him today, you go like, oh, he can strap on the skates and play right now. That, that's, how, that's how in shape he is right now. Um, and he, another, another guy, no injuries, no nothing. Um, but I will say that he was probably one of the biggest shit disturbers on the ice that you ever saw in your life. And, uh, he always had guys to, that, that backed him up and whatnot, but he was, 
uh, you know, he's yapping at you all the time. You know, you, you're, you gotta, you're tied up around their bench and he's on the bench. If you take his butt in and hit you in the face with it, you know, just stuff like that, just to, just to, just to piss you off. And, um, but and I'll tell you, he was the only, he was the only ambidextrous hockey player you ever saw. He was able to shoot right and left-handed, uh, which is amazing. Um, and, and I, I don't think people give him enough credit for his defensive play because they, uh, they always known him as like he, he played offense more so, and you know he didn't he didn't he didn't light up the, the scoreboard all the time, but he was a really solid defenseman for only being about 175 pounds. He wasn't that big of a dude, and he took he, he took on uh, all the big guys. So I, I give him a lot of credit. And he's a great guy. Another one, there's legendary stories about him when he was at Wisconsin when he played at Wisconsin and when he turned pro and. Um, and and I, I, it's more of an X, more, more of when you get your podcast, more, more X-ray, you can probably handle some of those stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, from one defenseman who didn't always light up the scoreboard to another, Scott Stevens. Now, I will say this about Stevens. I think a lot of people don't realize actually how good he was offensively. He is 12th all time in points for defense with 908. So that might surprise quite a few people, but, uh, Fifth overall pick by the Caps in 1982. Um, played all the way till 2004. Spent eight seasons in Washington before getting moved on to St. Louis for one year. And then, of course, he goes to New Jersey, where he played 13 years there. Um, just some little accolades about him. He does have 2,785 penalty minutes, which is more than any defenseman we're talking today. Uh, Coffee, I think, was the next highest that we're talking about today at 1,800. So... And that's um, that's a pretty pretty good solid number there. He's also has the third highest plus minus of the players that we're talking about tonight. And I, as a, someone who played defense, plus minus is an important stat to me. But uh, an all rookie team, thirteen time All Star, plus minus award winner, first team All Star, second team, uh, two time second team, three time third team, and three Stanley Cups, which is pretty good because New Jersey was definitely a defensive team. He also won the Conn Smythe trophy. I believe he might be the only defenseman that we're talking about tonight to get one. Oh, Lindstrom got one. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Internationally, he's got three silver medals, a gold and a bronze. He's the first Devils player to have his jersey retired, and he was their longest reigning captain. His nickname, Captain Crunch, for obvious reasons. Um he was voted the fifth most feared player in NHL history in 2001 by the Sporting News. And he's credited with changing, like, game momentum, not by scoring a goal, but with, with a hard check. Um, he's one of the hardest hitters in NHL history. Um, he knocked out Eric Lindros, Ron Francis, Paul Correa. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't afraid to, to hit, and uh, unfortunately, he had to retire because of concussion syndrome um, because of the style that he did play. Now, that being said, I, I know a lot of people think he was a dirty player, but I got a quote here from Matt Collin, who was just, you know, one of the all-around great hockey guys, and he wrote a, a tribute piece in 2009 when Stevens retired, and he said that Stevens wasn't dirty. He played hard, very physical but played the right way, and only four elbowing minors in his entire career supports this. So that that's a strong statement from, from Matt Collin. Um, Peter, I mean, what are your thoughts? Do, do you consider him a dirty player, or is, you know, 
Tell us about Scott Stevens. Yeah, I, I, I definitely don't uh, think of him as a dirty player. Uh, but I, I, I think his, his, when he first started playing um, uh, with the uh, Washington Capitals, I, I think he, he went out of his way a little bit to, to, to be really physical and, and fight and do all those things that he, that he thought he needed to do. And it wasn't until his, maybe his second year in New Jersey that he realized he didn't have to go out looking for it all the time and, and be that guy that to, to start fights and, and whatnot. The fights were going to end up coming to him anyways because of the way he played. But I will tell you, you, you know you're a good player. And, 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 and put him on the, in the greats, uh, you know, one of the greats of the game. When they change the rules of the game because of the way you play, his open ice hits – because, you know, when you're growing up playing hockey, one of the first things you learned to do was you never go cut across the ice with your head down. And you never look, you never admire your pass or anything like that because somebody's going to hit you. And those are the things we, we learned growing up. And as, the, as he started playing, you had all these, uh, you know, they're changing the game the way kids play now where they're, they're not allowing to hit at young ages and things like that. And, um, and he would come across the ice with these guys with their head down and he would just pummel them, absolutely pummel them. And they had it. They changed the rules of the game. They they start penalizing whether it's a clean hit, uh, whether it's a dirty hit. They penalize you, and you get thrown out of the game, get suspended. And it's all it's because of Scott Stevens that that, that a lot of these forwards think they're bigger than they are when they come across the middle because there's nobody stepping up and, and taking their heads off and, and and with clean checks. And uh, but I'll tell you, you talk about a a, a man among boys. Um, he was always working out. He was a big dude. I mean, st- height wise, he wasn't wasn't. I mean, he was like maybe like six one or something like that. But he was a big dude. He's probably like, you know, back then there was not many guys that were two hundred and twenty pounds, and he was one of them. And uh, and boy, when he hit you and he laid into you, you, you felt it. And, and but I tell you, he was a great leader. Um, I know that because uh, Lou Lamorello was the president and GM of the Devils, who was my college coach, and um, he always raved about him. And you know, and to for for Lou to say something nice about somebody, it's uh, you you know it's you, you know it's affection in, in the right way because uh, uh, he always he never really compliments anybody and, and when he does it you better know it's it's the guy it's for real. It's a travesty he never won a Norris Trophy. That just goes to show what we said earlier: defensive defensemen, they're not getting it anymore. No. But let's move on to our final player tonight, Larry Murphy. All right, Larry Murphy, 22 NHL seasons for the Kings, Caps, North Stars, Penguins, Leafs, and Wings. Um, His career got off to a really hot start. He set the NHL record for most points and most assists by a rookie defenseman in 1980-81. He had 10 or more goals in 16 seasons, and he had 50 or more points in 14 seasons. He averaged more points per game than... Four of the guys that we're talk- that we talked about tonight: Scott Stevens, Nick Lindstrom, Chris Chelios, and Rod Langway. Um, Murphy was a very consistent player. He just did everything well. Uh, he could hold the line. Um, he was always the power play QB. Uh, he was very smart and clever, and you rarely you rarely saw him caught out of position. Um, he helped every team improve that he played on. Uh, in 1990-91, he became one of the you know major pieces of the Penguins championship puzzle. Um, he was plus 102 in 336 games with the Penguins. Um, and he was plus 17 in the playoffs. 
which was the best in the league. Uh, he wa- uh, In 1996-97, he became the Red Wings championship uh, puzzle piece. And he was plus 16 in the playoffs, which, w- which was also uh, league leading. Uh, he was a smart player, disciplined, didn't take a lot of dumb penalties. Um, and then, you know, you think about it, the confidence that the Penguins had, uh, you know, it made them believe that Paul Coffey was sort of expendable and a guy that they could let go, you know, because of um, how, you know, how well Murphy played. So Larry Murphy, just one of the best uh, defensemen of all time. Spear, you played with him in Minnesota and you got traded with him to Pittsburgh. I mean, I want to hear about your the Murphy dump, but uh, I also... <laughs> Murphy dump. <laughs> it seems like he's like... When you watch him play, like he might be the slowest skater out there, but the man is always there in the play. Tell us about Murphy. So, so when Larry Larry was in Minnesota, and I got traded there, um, and the North Stars, North Stars at the time were, were such disarray. Uh, you know, they were playing in front of four thousand people. Uh, they're they're going through an ownership change. Uh, the guys who were running the team were Bobby Clark was the GM, Bob Ganey was the head coach, Doug Jarvis was an assistant coach, Andy Murray is the other assistant coach, and none of these guys smiled, laughed. They, they, it was miserable, absolutely miserable. And, and, you know, I get there from Winnipeg, and, you know, and I'm, I'm jovial, and I want to, you know, you practice, you're, you know, you, you got to want to be to the rank, and you're joking around. They would just, like, look at you, stare at you, whatever. And Larry Murphy was one of those guys that, he wasn't a physical guy. They wanted they wanted guys to be physical and run over the ice. Murph wasn't like that, and, and you can just tell that they didn't want him around. And I, and I have no idea why. Because I will say this emphatically: Larry Murphy's in the top three most underrated players ever to play the National Hockey League. Nobody realized how good this guy was, and then so we get traded to Pittsburgh, and and all of a sudden he's able to be himself. You know. If there was an optional practice, he wasn't near the rink. He was never on the ice. He did, you know, didn't need to. He just did what he wanted. You know, he showed up and played. And uh, deceivingly fast as as a player, you mentioned it. It doesn't look like he's going anywhere, but boy, he had huge legs and he had big long strides that he would get there. And another defense, another guy that never saw him get beat one on one. But I will tell you, his biggest asset was they mentioned it earlier, his ability to stand at the blue line. And stop that puck from getting out of the zone. He'd knock it down. He'd do stuff. And and a lot of guys would take that, you know, an opportunity. If a guy's, you know, is a one, kind of 50-50, you're going to get the puck or not. A lot of defense would back out and get a head start just so they wouldn't get caught off guard with speed. Uh, and Larry never Larry never left the, uh, the blue line to the very last minute if he had to at all. Um, he was able to keep people in front of him and, and, and buy time for guys to get back and, and defensively, he wasn't physical, but boy, he got in your way and did stuff. And I'll tell you another re- how you can tell he was how good he was in the '87 Canada Cup, where Lemieux scored the game-winning goal. He was Paul, he was on he was on the ice. He was the defenseman on the ice with Paul Coffey, and uh, uh, that's how you can tell how good you are if they're going to put you on the ice for that situation. Definitely deserves to be on our list tonight. So let's move into our vote. Remember, guys, can't vote for your own. Kevin, you're in my upper corner. You got first vote. Man, that's uh, this is a tough one. Yeah, because uh, you took the two easiest. Of course, it's tough for you. Oh, you. I didn't even pick my players first. Um, 
I'm gonna have to go with Paul Coffey. That man, I mean, let's be honest, that was like having another winger on, on the line when he was on the ice, and that man could go coast to coast. You see him go from behind the goal and take it through the whole team and score. That man had some stick handling skills, shooting skills, speed. Um, yeah, you have to go with Paul Coffey. Paul. Yeah, I'll do Ray Bork. I mean, we know he's going to be on there. I'll just get him out of the way. He's he's probably the best, so I'm going Ray Bork. Okay. Brian? I think you got to go Nicholas Lindstrom. I mean, seven Norris trophies. The, to be the best defenseman in, in seven seasons is just amazing. Wow, so that leaves me two of mine that I can't pick. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when this happens. No, but no, no love for actual defense anymore in this world, I'll tell you. So... <laughs> Man, between Chelios and McGinnis, I... You might as well go Chelios. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> yeah. I'm actually going to go McGinnis. Um, yeah, I, right. I, love what Peter, I love what Peter said about him earlier. If this guy played in L.A., New York, Philly, he's a household name, you know? Uh, he got a couple years in there at St. Louis, and gosh, he, he had, like, one of the worst injuries I ever heard. Like, his eye like the retina detached from his eye or something when he was in St. Louis. That's a crazy, insane injury. So I'm going on McGinnis. It's pressure on you, Peter. You need to take somebody who's left. I have to pick somebody who's left. Uh, then yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go the pro I'm, I'm going to say that Rod Langway is, if you're going to talk a pure defensive defenseman, Rod Langway's the guy. Awesome. Yeah. So our top five tonight, Paul Coffey, Ray Bork, Nick Lindstrom, Al McGinnis, Rod Langway. Nice job, guys. Kevin, you got two on the list, so that makes you the winner. You get first question for our Q&A with Peter. Awesome. Uh, real quick, I was actually debating between Stevens and McGinnis and Coffee. Those were the three I was having a hard time between. But anyways, um, so, uh, Peter, so I, I saw that uh, one of your – you had said one of your most memorable games was against uh, – the Rangers in 91. Is that accurate? And, and just out of curiosity, why? why oh, that- most, just overall memorable. Not, not that thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, our, the team in 91, you know, we had, you know, like I mentioned, you know, had Lemieux, Yager, Francis, Kevin Stevens, uh, you know, well, Koff was in Koff, Yari Dina, Joey Mullen, Mark Recchi. We had guys that were, uh, we had a lot of fun and, and we, nobody was serious in the locker room. Everybody's joking around. And, uh, and we just, and, and right towards the end of the year, we started playing, uh, like we were playing really, really well. Right after the, the Ronnie, Ronnie Francis, Alf Samuelson and Grant Jennings trade. Um, uh, and we, we, we really started playing well. And so we get into New York and it were, I think we have two games left in the regular season. No, I think it was our last game. I think it was the last game of the season. And we had a couple guys that were, um, uh, had bonuses coming up. Uh, Randy Gillen was one of our uh, center icemen who had a, a bonus for 15 goals. Uh, uh, Phil Bork had uh, a bonus for 20 goals. And all throughout the year, we would have this uh, uh, thing called the fine fun, F-I-N-E. And if somebody did something stupid on the ice or whatever it is, they fine him 100 bucks, put it in. It's for the end of the year party type thing. And, uh, so throughout the year, so we play, say we play in Boston, I'm from Boston, they, you know, they would, guys would say, oh, you know, they didn't want you, they shit all over you, you know, 
you know, whatever. And I put a hundred, if we win, I put a hundred dollars in, you know, one of those type things or, and we get to the point where they were getting to be like $500, you know, we put it in. And so at the end of the year, um, so we were getting up there. And so we had to, we wanted to get these guys a, uh, uh their bonuses. And so, uh, Randy Gillen was our fourth line center, but he was our, he was our big face-off guy in defensive zone. They put him on the ice. He was really, really good. Um, he was on every power play. <laughs> he played a regular shift, uh, and he got he got his 15th goal. And uh, Phil Bork, uh, same thing. They had him out there the whole time, and he got his 20th. And and then our goalies that night were um, Frank Peterangelo and, and Wendell Young. And uh, so, we're, you know, we're, like, we're joking around the locker room, whatever it is. And I, I, I think it was Kevin Stevens said uh, – Hey, I'll I'll put a thousand bucks in the in the in the fine fund if you guys the goalies would switch on the fly, change on the fly without in the middle of the game. And um, so Frankie's playing that. Wendell's on the ice. Wendell's on the bench, and Frankie's playing. And uh, so they they decide they're going to do it in the um, uh, in the third period at the beginning of the third period because where our benches were. Uh, so Frankie's going to be down to our right and. Plays down in our zone. It goes in the Rangers zone, and he makes a beeline for the, to the bench. Wendell jumps out, and he goes on the ice, and he's in the net. And he's in the net for a good good minute and a half, two minutes. There was actually a stoppage in play. It started back up again, and then they switched back without anybody knowing about it. And so we're on the ice dying laughing in the middle of the game. And we thought – it's just one of those – one of the, there's a lot of really thing, a lot of cool things that I remember, but that game just stood out because that was the type of team we had that, that we you know – we, we knew we had a good team. Um, we weren't going to be uh, hard-pressed to, to uh, um, you know, go, hey, let's, let's, let's get real stagnant before the, the, the playoffs or anything like that. We, just, we took that attitude in, in there. But that was one of the games I really I, I enjoyed. We laughed, we laughed the whole time. So you know if that uh, that goaltender switch is caught on camera, like are we able to YouTube that or see that? Or so when I, I said it to somebody and they looked it up, and actually what they uh, they had. Um, I'm not sure if they f- they found video of Wendell in the net, but they actually had the wrong goaltender. Wendell Young was the backup goaltender, but they had Bruce Racine as the backup goaltender in the books. Mm-hmm. And but yeah, but, but yeah, I bet you if you you probably can uh, you you probably have to find a game online somewhere, and you can you, you'll be able, I don't know if you'll see it because all the cameras were were panning down one end, and it just happened down here, and there was only a you know our, the the right hand right right half of our bench where the defensemen sit all the way about halfway up and a couple of assistant coaches and uh, the trainers saw what happened. And I'm sure the, the people on, and sitting on the board or on the boards are going, what the hell's going on here? But yeah, that was, it was hysterical. It was one of the funniest things ever. It's on there, Kevin. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah. So the NHL just had an expansion draft. So I want to take you back to 92, 93. You were picked up in the expansion draft by the Tampa Bay Lightning. I, I realize you were only – in Tampa a short time as they trade you back to Pittsburgh. But let me ask you about your time here in Tampa. I- I've heard that you guys were like, your locker room was next to like the circus and the elephants and oh, yeah. <laughs> things like that. Oh, yeah. so j- just tell us a little bit about your experience in Tampa. My, I call it my sabbatical. It was my sabbatical down in Florida for four months. Um, so, uh, uh, so at the end of the 92 season, I had uh, back surgery. And Craig Patrick called me and he said, "Hey, we're not going to protect you because you know, uh, I don't. We don't think they're going to pick you up because you have surgery and stuff." And I said, oh, "That's fine, whatever." And uh, 
Um, next thing I know, I get a call from Phil Esposito because uh, when I was in Winnipeg, Phil tried to trade for me uh, to go to New York uh, a couple times, and John Ferguson would never trade me. And um, I, I don't think he liked Phil, so I didn't, he didn't want to do any deals with Phil. So, and, um, so anyways, uh, so he, Phil picked me. He said, "Hey, oh my God, you know, like, you know, hey, we we got you. We come down, you know, we, we, whatever." But remember back then, then there was no. It's not, it's not expansion like it is now. Um, you know, there's a salary cap now. There was none there. And basically what they did was, well, if you're, a, you know, a, a, the third, fourth line guy, you know, fifth, fourth, fifth, sixth defenseman, you know, you were taken and, you know, maybe your third goaltender was taken. So we were, we had a bunch of, I, I, I we call us, the, we were the cast-offs, basically what it was. And um, But we had some pretty good players down there. Brian Bradley was a guy that uh, could really play. We had Basil McCray, one of the one of the all-time great leaders of a team. Um, Wendell Young was our goalie. Uh, Robbie DeMaio was another guy. So we had a pretty decent team. We actually set a record for uh, most wins by an expansion team. We had, I think we had 30, 36, 35, 36, 37 wins, uh, which is um, uh, unheard of. But anyways, uh, so we get down there. And since you guys are down, you know where the fairgrounds are. Yeah. So you know when you go into the fairgrounds, is just uh, uh, that – just it's just like a giant barn. It's all it was. It was, they do rodeos in there, you know, basically what it was. And that's that was that was the rink. And they set up a rink, and um, so they set it up, and they put a giant curtain in the middle of it because it's, it's a pretty wide place. And on the other side, they put this uh, a, a giant tent for the, like the it's like the you know ambassadors club, the igloo club, the old igloo club in Pittsburgh, you know those type things. And that's for all the VIPs to go after the game. Um, so basically, they, it was just. Three sides of the the rink was um, had fans on it, um, and it's where Ringling Brothers and Barnum Barnum and Bailey uh, there was their headquarters. There was their training training ground. So when you walked out, there was a pond, and then you go down about two hundred yards, and that's where the elephants were. And as you go down farther, then the lions were down there and whatnot, and it stunk so bad. It was you know when that wind started blowing one direction, <laughs> it was elephant crap everywhere, and you know. It's but but it was different. It was fun, but it was the hardest part was in the you know in the in eight, you know eighty eighty five degrees out. You know you're outside taping your stick, sitting outside getting a tan, and um, and then when the state fair showed up, the, all the all the cooking, all, all the, the the food vendors were right at our door. I mean, it was like you walk out and you're like you're banging into uh, you know the propane tanks and stuff like that that they were cooking with and. Um, but I tell you, it was, it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of transplanted Northerners down there that wanted to go to games. The hardest part was to get native Floridians interested in the game, uh, because it's a hard game to follow on the, on TV. It, you know, if you're not used to watching it, you know, if you don't have good camera guys, you don't know where they're going. Um, and once they, they gave a lot of tickets away, they, once they got people at the games, they got like, Oh my God, there's fighting here. You can fight in this place. And there's, you know, they were going 20, 30 miles an hour. And, and they're, because they were used to slow methodical sports, the baseball, the football, even basketball is much slower than, than hockey is. And, and plus the violence. I mean, it, it caught on pretty quick. And, um, and it was a destination spot, just like it is Vegas now for teams that, hey, we're going to, hey, let's go on vacation to Tampa Bay and we'll, we can watch a couple games. And, and those summer, those, those Southern teams, that's what they, they get that extra revenue because all these guys come down from Canada or wherever they are for a vacation and plus see games. Ryan, go ahead. So, um, 
you mentioned earlier in 1990-91 season, um, you were with the North Stars, then you got dealt to the Penguins midseason. Then you end up playing the North Stars in the Stanley Cup. So what were your thoughts when, when you realized that you were going against your old team, and did the familiarity help any? No, because when, when Murph and I left Minnesota, they were it was it, it was it was horrible. I mean, the guys, um, and like I said, there were some there were some nice guys on the team. Don't get me wrong. They, there was a couple. There were a few guys that you could care less about, but they were really good guys, and they they had, they had good players. They just were miserable there, and they, they, nothing seemed to work. And they're they playing in front of three four thousand people. So, anyways, so when we get to Pittsburgh, we're on a roll. Minnesota. I mean, barely. I mean, I, I think they, they skimmed in by the last game, the last minute of the last game of the season, they get into the playoffs. And and they just started going on this roll. I mean, they just started, for some reason, they just started playing really, really well. And, and still nobody gave them much of a, uh, a thought uh, because of how, how how bad it was all year long. And and all of a sudden, it's like, you know, they're, they're, they beat – I think they uh, – the. I, I, I'm going to be wrong here, but I think it was like four-one that the first series they played, they just blew whoever they played out. Um, and then he is Detroit. Was it Detroit? Yeah. And yeah, um, so. you know, it was like, wow, all right, Jesus, whoever thought that was going to happen? And next, you know, I think it was um, Chicago or, or St. Louis was the next one, and, and they oh they beat them four games to two, and you're like, well, holy crap, you know, like then you started thinking about it. Um, so when we ended up playing them. Uh, it was a totally different atmosphere. I mean, those guys were flying. I mean, they were um, full of confidence. And they had a young Mike McDonough on that team who was really, 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 really good. Neil Brock was another guy. And you really had to kind of, you know, you know pick, your, pick your poison, who, who you're going to go, who you're going to try to defend against. But um, I, I think what Minnesota tried to do against us was, try to be overly physical with, <clears throat> with us, you know, trying to, you know, hit Mario all, you know, as much as he can and, and run Paul coffee as much as he can and, and things like that. And, and I don't think it, I think it took away from that's where they had to play against Detroit's and, and St. Louis's and Chicago's of the world. And I think if they just try to play us straight up without the, without the pushing and shoving, I think it would have been a, uh, uh, it probably would have been seven games. I mean, it, we went six anyways, but um, I, I think the games that we played, and the, and we jumped out to big leads in a lot of those games, and we sat back a little bit, and they caught they you know they caught up a little bit. Um, but I think that you know the shining moment was that uh, the Saturday night eight nothing that we just decided you know you know you know this go and 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 they and the and the, the, pro, and the big problem is and people don't realize it was I think the game before the, the refs came in and say hey we're not going to put up any of this crap you know after you know running you know running guys and running into goaltenders and stuff. And I think the very first minute of the game. Neil Broughton goes in and runs Tom Barrasso and gets a penalty. And then the, then the floodgates open. It was just like the, everything just drained out of them. And we just started pumping them. You know, John Casey and Brian Hayward, was, Brian Hayward was the other goalie that they, they kept on switching in and out. And, um, but it was a totally different team that I, that, that we, that I played on. Um, and, and kudos to them that, that they played really, really well. And then what the next year they, they left for Phoenix, you know, so not Phoenix, um, Dallas, they Dallas. Dallas. Yeah. Dallas. Yeah. So they took out the defending champs Oilers too. So yep. yeah. kudos to them. Yep. Paul, go ahead. Peter, great career. Uh, but we have to, before we get you out of here, call you out on this epic failure of yours. <laughs> that failure's name is Yokozuna. Yokozuna. 
please put us aboard, take us on board to the USS Intrepid on July 4th, 1993. I mean, how'd that come to be? And come on, it was only 568 pounds. How come we couldn't get him up? <laughs> I don't know if you, if you ever saw the pic, if, if you saw the big picture, I, you know, I go down and put my hand underneath them and you can, you couldn't even see my hand out the back end of his, you know, out his ass. That's, that's I saw it on YouTube today. I watched it on YouTube. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Um, so anyway, I was, I was down in Tampa Bay and, um, and believe and so all most wrestlers live in the Atlanta area or Florida or Tampa. They all live down in that area. And um, one day I, I ran into uh, Jimmy Hart, the mouth of the South, and uh, he, he big hockey fan. And so I said, you know, come to the, you know come out to the game and whatnot. So he brought his kids to the game and you know come into the locker room and um, we had a uh, uh, equipment manager uh, named Jaco Kaye that. Um, uh, you know, like the league would send all this, you know, like the, the, the bags with sweatshirts and all that kind of stuff for the players. And, and all these teams would get them. We would never get anything. We, we never got anything. We were going like, we're asking them, Hey, how come we don't get anything? And they said, we sent Jocko has everything. And so, so, so we, Wendell Young and I approached him anyway. So the big, long story short. So Jimmy Hart came in and I said, Jocko, go get him, go get him a bag, go get him some, all this stuff, whatever. So we became pretty good friends. And so I get traded back to Pittsburgh, and um, so it was right right at the end of the season. Uh, we I, we just lost to the um, uh, the Islanders, and the phone rings, and it's Vince McMahon, and I'm going like, "What?" And he goes, "Yeah, Jimmy Hart gave me your phone number, and you know, and you know, this is what we're planning on doing. Would you you would be interested in it?" And at the time, I had three young kids um, that were uh, uh, five and a, a five year old and, and and two three year olds. And they were into wrestling. They loved it. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. So they, they, they brought us in New York, put us up at the Waldorf. Um, and uh, so we get there and we go down. They're having like kind of a get-together bank. We go down there and all the wrestlers are there, even the retired ones that, uh, you know, from way back when. And, uh, and I'm in my glory because, I you know, I was a huge wrestling guy in the, you know, when I was growing up. And uh, he uh, – so we got to meet everybody and we have a great old time. So then at the end of the night, the next day we go to the Intrepid. So we're backstage, we're, under, we're underneath the carrier inside these rooms and, and guys like Tatanka and the Steiner brothers and um, uh, I'm trying to think, I think missing my right, I'm missing it right now. But they're on the floor wrestling with my kids. It was like, it, it, my kids were in heaven, they're jumping around, we got, you know, got all these pictures and, and whatnot. Uh, but they were some of the nicest guys you ever, ever wanted to meet. And so what they did was they brought in two athletes from each sport. So they had uh, two basketball players, two football players, two hockey players. They had a, they had a jockey. Um, they had uh, – I'm trying to think who else said. I think they had a couple swimmers. Uh, but anyway, so we get out there, and, you know, they didn't tell us anything. They said they just go out and try to do this thing, you know, whatever. So you go out there, and you – it was probably maybe a ten, uh, eight thousand people on the deck uh, of the carrier, and so you get out there. And uh, the other, the other hockey player was Sean Cronin. I don't remember him, Cronin the Barbarian. Yeah, so he was the other guy. And um, so we get up there, and I, I'm standing there, and and I'm two hundred and two hundred and five, two hundred and ten pounds, and I look at him, and I'm telling you, his he was huge. I mean, he's bigger than you ever. That five, I, it was way more than five hundred and sixty pounds because he was massive. Like a shadow cavalier trying to lift. <laughs> yeah, I, it's um, yeah, it's crazy. And uh, so they, they didn't tell you anything. They didn't tell you like, hey, hey, just try to do it this way. You know, whatever. They just said go out there and and literally you just you just bent down and you, like 
and it was actually kind of gross because you know he's got a he's basically got a uh, uh, you know a camel toe in the back there, and you, you sit there and you put your hand up underneath them, and, and it's just and I he, he he was basically standing here, and by the time I was finished, he was about an inch back. But uh, it, it was fun. It, I did it for the I, I did it for the kids. Uh, but you know, like I said earlier, I think my my whole career comes down to because people always say, "Hey, wait a minute, were you the guy that tried to lift that wrestler?" And I said, "Yeah, that's me." But <laughs> but it was fun. I enjoyed it. I mean, it's part of uh, um, part of I mean, it's funny people that want to ask about it because I I didn't think anybody ever saw it, but everybody everybody knows about it now. So probably needed another back surgery after that, right? <laughs> oh my God, dude. but you know, so Bill Fralick. Um, so when Bill Fralick was a football player. I don't know if you remember, he was at Pitt, you know, yeah, massive, massive human being. He was so freaking big. And, uh, so he was there. And, um, so he, and he, when he lived in Atlanta, he knew all the wrestlers. He actually used to do a lot of stuff with, uh, WCW when it was down here originally. And so they, they knew he would. And so he was the guy that actually kind of got him up off the ground and, uh, you know, then put him down for Lex Luger to pick him up. So pretty, oh, nice. pretty interesting, yeah. Well, we'll get you out of here uh, with this tonight. Uh, this question is about your son, John. Oh. <laughs> uh, how happy did it make you seeing him get that assist with the stick handout to Sidney Crosby this past season? Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, it was – so I'm, I'm here – I'm down here in Atlanta, and we don't get any – so we don't get the Penguin games unless it's on a national thing. And, you know, we're just sitting around, and all of a sudden, my phone starts blowing up. I mean, I mean, I get, I get saying, ding, ding, ding. The text messages are going. The emails are blinking. And I'm going, and they're going, oh, my God, you just see John. And I was like, what? So I'm, I'm calling my, my, my other kids going, like, what the hell just happened? And, and my daughter, Corey, gets on the line, and she's like, you didn't see what happened. And so they, they're sending videos back and forth. So anyways, the, the, the funny part was people don't realize, so it, it – if I'm a defenseman and I lose my stick, a forward's going to give it to me, and they'll just go eventually and get something from somewhere. And usually, just go to bench and, and they'll say, "Hey, lefty, get a lefty out here." And they, but it was Sydney, and Sydney's not going to use anybody else's stick. So John had to see what was happening, get the stick, and and where John sits is inside the blue line. So he so he had to come outside the blue line, halfway up the bench, to make sure Sydney stayed on side to get his stick and 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 do what he needed to do. Um, you, you know, and it, 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 John's not a real, um, a, a public, public type guy. He, like he's very, very, very tight knit, you know, with his emotions and stuff. And he was overwhelmed with people, you know, how they, how they did it. And then they put that, um, uh, a survey up who did it better, the guy from Toronto from a year previous and, uh, you know, and John and things like that. But they actually, if you're, if, so I have to maybe try to get you. They, so they made some, um, and they they started calling him Stick Boy. So they made Stick Boy shirts, which is actually a load, a picture of him leaning over the boards, handing the stick to Crosby. <laughs> so they're actually pretty cool. They're up in Pittsburgh now. So it's, uh, but yeah, he, uh, it, you know, it, it was funny because I, I think people don't, people don't give the equipment managers and, and any of the trainers their due when, uh, you know, how hard they work and the, how on the ball they have to be from the medical guy having to jump on the ice with a split second notice of somebody's hurt to a, to a, an equipment guy that uh, um, has to, you know, somebody, you know, blows out his skate from an edge and, 
And in a matter of sat- in minutes, he's got to be able to go get it. John's got to go get it, get it sharpened, get it ready, get him back on the ice and not miss a shift. So they, they work, they work their asses off. And I, I was pretty, I'm pretty proud of him. He's a, he's a good kid. He's been, believe it or not, he's right now, he's the oldest serving person in the Penguins organization. He's been, he's been there since he was uh, 10 years old working in the locker rooms. So it's, uh, um, I, I give him a lot of credit. He really enjoys it. And, um, and, and he really likes the guys and the guys really like him. So I'm pretty proud of him. Well, so. thank you. Peter Cagalanetti joined us tonight. Awesome to hear some of that memories. I want to remind everybody to subscribe or join every channel we're on. Just get them all on your phone and hit subscribe and join. So thank you for joining us tonight and good night.